Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will end by saying, this is the word of the Lord. And we invite you to respond together. Thanks be to God. Today's reading is from Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Olivia. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, good morning once again. I'm excited to be uh, back preaching this week after I had a few weeks off there from our trip to Africa. And uh, last week uh, we had Pastor John Humas from South Florida and New City Fellowship uh, come up and preach. And if you were not here, which was a ton of you because you were serving at a, a foster care camp that we were putting on, I'd really encourage you to go and uh, check out the sermon on the podcast that uh, John did an incredible job uh, preaching through Psalm 117, talking about God's purposes and God's promises as the nations are invited to worship him. And so I uh, would encourage you to check that out. Thanks for being hospitable to John and Virginia and his family. I know it was a restful and encouraging weekend for them. Uh, but today I'm excited to get back in the pulpit and we're going to be looking at Psalm 126, which Olivia just read for us. And one of the things that is both unique and helpful about these psalms, one of the reasons why we're preaching through some of the psalms, is that they are written from mankind's perspective, speaking directly to God, which is a little bit rare in the scriptures if you think about it. And that means that the psalms express emotions and experiences that we go through in this life in really vivid and accurate ways. See, whereas more of the narrative accounts in the Old Testament, they might just present a hard situation as a very matter-of-fact way. Or whereas the Apostle Paul in the New Testament might make this declarative statement about something that's incredibly true theologically, uh, those are both great, but the Psalms, they are the songs from the heart, right? They tap deep down into our souls and they express feelings and prayers that well up within us. And in that way, the Psalms are meant to be a sort of guidebook for us as we navigate life's natural ups and downs. And the Psalms are an incredible treasure and a gift for us for those seasons where we can't just quite put into words what we're feeling. We open up the Psalms and they help guide and instruct us. Now, as we think about this idea of emotions and experiences, you see there's two equal and opposite errors I think we can make in regards to them. On the one hand, we can completely discredit, ignore, or suppress the emotions that we might go through in this life. On the other hand, we can be completely dominated by them and be in fear of them at all times. 
And I find that most people fall on one end of the spectrum or the other, right? So I've confessed here on this stage that I'm not a super emotional person. Uh, this is not a shock for those of you who know me. Uh, my emotional range is, is pretty steady. And then yesterday, for example, like I shed some tears because I literally was taking a leaf blower to blow the pollen off of my driveway, right? That's about the only thing that's moved me to tears in the past couple weeks. Even though I was in Africa and there were some incredible things happening there, that made me cry more, if I'm being honest. And so I have the tendency maybe to discredit, downplay emotions. Some of you feel all the feels, right? Where are my people out there who feel all the feels? Amen. There they are, right? We're, we're just on opposite ends of the spectrum. Here's the beauty of the Psalms. They bring us back to center. They bring us back to center, and they invite us not to ignore our emotions, not to be dominated by them, but instead, they invite us to pray our emotions. They invite us to pray our deepest feelings and to process them by bringing them before the Lord. And in Psalm 126 in particular, it's the perfect emotional map for the Christian life. Because I don't know if you heard it as Olivia was reading it, the first three verses talk about joy. They talk about excitement, happiness, good things that have happened, but then a shift takes place in verse 4, and all of a sudden the people seem to be in need. They seem to be in a season of sorrow and of want. And that is our human existence, isn't it? I mean, we swing from the high moments to the low moments, from joy to sorrow, from gladness to suffering, and the Psalms just give us a real-life picture of that. And so today, as we walk through Psalm 126, what I want to do is just talk about how we navigate the ups and downs of life. Here's the main idea I think we're going to see in this text. The Christian life is full of joy and sorrow, appreciating God's past faithfulness while anticipating his future grace. The Christian life is full of joy and sorrow, appreciating God's past faithfulness while anticipating his future grace. And we're going to see that by looking first at that joy in verses 1 through 3, and then secondly, the sorrow in verses 4 through 6. But before we jump into that, let's pause and let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the Psalms. Uh, what a treasure they are. What a help that they are to us as we seek to navigate uh, just the normal ups and downs of life. And Lord, I don't know the situation of every person coming into this room. I'm sure there are some here who are happy, they're joyful, they're experiencing your blessing in a unique way in this season. And I'm positive there are some in this room who are in seasons of sorrow. They're struggling, they are suffering, they are feeling pain from whatever it might be. And the good news is you call us into a family where we come together, joys and sorrows. We submit ourselves to you and your word and you've promised to give us help in our time of need. So this morning, may your word speak powerfully to the situations that are in this room. May you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond to this good news. Holy Spirit, may you speak clearly and powerfully for us this morning. Move me out of the way, and I pray that this psalm would stir our affections and our gratitude ultimately for Jesus the one who has saved us and called us into this family. So bless our time in this word now. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin first by talking about remembering our joy. 
remembering our joy. Sometimes in the Psalms, we know the exact historical context that's going on. Uh, If we do, oftentimes it'll be written in the little title next to the chapter number. Now, this psalm doesn't give us a little uh, description of what these circumstances are, but nearly every scholar that I read in studying this passage, they agree that this song was written in response to the return of the Babylonian exiles. So if you think back to the Old Testament, uh, there were the prophets who were coming, and they were warning the people of Israel over and over again that their disobedience their unfaithfulness to the Lord, their false religious practices, they were going to have consequences. In fact, if you're participating in community Bible reading with us, we're in the Kings right now, this is the generation where the prophets are warning over and over again of unfaithfulness. And what eventually happens, what culminates this unfaithfulness is King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, He leads his crew into Jerusalem, and they conquer Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, and then they take many of the Israelites into captivity. They take them into exile as slaves. They take them away from the promised land. And this Babylonian exile would last for 70 years. Almost a whole generation was born and gone while they're in exile until this Persian king named Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, He would give an edict that would allow the Israelites to return home and specifically return home to rebuild their temple. Now, if that's the backdrop of this psalm, and there's no reason to disagree with that, this would be a really powerful experience for the Israelites who would sing this. Because remember, these songs of ascents, they were the songs that the Israelite pilgrims would sing as they traveled to Jerusalem which meant they were walking the very same path that these Babylonian exiles who had been set free had walked before them. They were in almost the exact same situation of being in a faraway land, returning home and singing this song. And as they sing this song, they're reminded of their joy. Let's look at the text again in verse 1. It says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, Zion being Jerusalem, God's people, We were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. See, I want us to observe three things about joy in these passages. The first thing is that joy is received, not manufactured. Joy is received, not manufactured. You see, the people are taken aback by this activity of the Lord. Whether it was the return from exile or some other miraculous redemptive activity of God, this is a powerful description. It said, when the Lord restored our fortunes, we were like those who dream. They're saying, we're so blown away by this action of God, we can hardly believe it. They're looking around saying, can you believe this is true? This is like our wildest dreams all of a sudden being fulfilled. It almost felt too good to be true. You see, this kind of joy, it's a surprise. This kind of joy just wells up. It's received by something outside of themselves. And brothers and sisters, that is how true joy so often works in our lives. It'd be very unhelpful for me to stand up here and say, hey, you guys, just go and be joyful this week. I mean, does that work? It's almost the same thing as being, hey, don't be anxious this week. Just stop being anxious. Does that work, those of you who struggle with anxiety? 
No, right? This has to be a blessing that is received. This kind of joy, it just wells up within us. I love how Eugene Peterson describes this. He says, joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It is a consequence. It is not what we have to acquire in order to experience life in Christ. It is what comes to us when we are walking in the way of faith and obedience. We cannot make ourselves joyful. Joy cannot be commanded, purchased, or arranged. Joy is what God gives, not what we work up. I hope that you feel the hope of that. I mean, do you feel the hope of that? Because that's what this means. This joy, it can rush upon us at any time from the Lord. And that means you don't need to be a pie-in-the-sky, happy-go-lucky, everything-is-always-fine kind of Christian. Listen, if you're a cheery disposition by nature, I'm not trying to rain on that parade. We need you, right? That's important. We want the glass is all the way full type people around. But listen, we don't have to fake it in that way. We don't have to fake it and just act like everything is okay when it certainly is not. That's not where real joy all of a sudden comes from. But here's the thing, even in the midst of life's up and downs, we have every reason in the world to be hopeful that joy, it's just right around the corner. That joy can happen like that because we have a God who has broken into our world and has broken in with a message of grace and salvation and blessing. And that means joy could happen instantaneously. Which means this, while we can't manufacture joy, while we can't just work it up within us, we can fight for it. We are, in fact, commanded to fight for it. Paul says in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. I don't think Paul's saying, work it up within you until you're happy. No, Paul's saying, listen, you can fight for joy. You can fight to be in this posture of receiving blessing and gladness from the Lord himself. The problem is, is that you and I tend to look for joy in all the wrong places. We tend to look for joy in temporary things, and distractions, or in overindulgence, or in entertainment, or in substances, or you fill in the blank for your own life. See, we tend to look for this joy in all the wrong places, looking for things to deliver what only God can deliver. But true joy, it cannot be manufactured in that way. It has to be received as a blessing from God. And so we ought to ask the question then, how can we fight for that? If we can't manufacture it, how can we possibly fight for joy? And that leads to my second observation. So joy is received, not manufactured. But secondly, joy is rooted in God's faithfulness in the past. Joy is rooted in God's faithfulness in the past. The way that we fight for joy is by remembering God's past faithfulness to us. You see, everything in these first few verses, I don't know if you caught it, it's in the past tense. The people of Israel are walking along on this journey, this ascent towards Jerusalem, and they are reminding themselves of what's happened before. And specifically, they're remembering the redemption that God brought them. They're bringing to mind all the ways that God graciously poured out his grace and his kindness on an undeserving people. And by the way, that is the story of the whole Bible. The story of the Bible is a story of redemption. Go all the way back to Genesis. Mankind falls into sin and God promises right on the spot, listen, things are bad, but one day an offspring of the woman is coming. 
And that offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent. Redemption is coming. Fast forward a little bit. In the Bible, you get the story of the exodus from Egypt. The people are enslaved. They're in need of a return home, being brought into the promised land. And the Lord brings about redemption. Miraculously rescues his people from slavery, sets them free. Fast forward to the exile. The people in their own sin end up in Babylon and the Lord graciously by his own sovereign hand works out events so they can be set free and return home. See, all of that is setting the stage for the greatest redemption of all, which is the redemption that Jesus brings. Jesus comes to an undeserving people like you and me and he comes offering grace and freedom and redemption that is found only in him. You see, the way that we fight for joy is we remind ourselves of what God has done. Again, I think Eugene Peterson is helpful. He says, we nurture these memories of laughter, these shouts of joy. We fill our mind with the stories of God's act. Joy has a history. I love that sentence. Joy has a history. Joy is the verified, repeated experience of those involved in what God is doing. It is as real as a date in history, as solid as a stratum of rock in Palestine. Joy is nurtured by living in such a history and building on such a foundation. Joy is not wishful thinking. Joy has a history. Joy can be traced all the way back through God's faithful promises to us. So let's dream here for a moment. What if we were a people who nurtured this kind of joy in our lives by making little landmarks of God's faithfulness to us. You see, we can be people who become very easily cynical, very skeptical in our day and age. What if instead of always complaining about everything, we took some time, honestly, you should do this this week, take some time and just write down all of the ways that you've seen God's faithfulness to you over the past five years. What if we began to write down and record All the ways that he answered our prayers, even unexpectedly, just in the last six months. I think you'd be amazed how long that list is. You'd be amazed to see God's faithfulness, even just to you individually over the course of that time. What if we were a community who were committed to reminding one another about the ways we've seen God be faithful? You see, there's actually evidence in the Bible of the Israelites doing this very same activity. Let me give you one example. We sing a song here often uh, called Come Thou Fount, right? And there's a line in there that says this. It says, here I raise my Ebenezer, which is a strange line. We can all be honest for a moment, right? Sometimes I'm like, this, it's weird English, right? What's going on here? Well, let me explain this. I'm going to help Pastor Ryan out here. Let me explain the rich history of Ebenezer for just a moment because there's a backstory to it. It comes from 1 Samuel chapter 7. And in 1 Samuel 7, the people had sinned, they had not consulted God, and all of a sudden they were about to be defeated by the Philistines. And the people stop, they pause, and they pray, and they say, God, we've gotten ourselves into a mess, and we need you to intervene. They humbled themselves before the Lord. And then what happens is God miraculously delivers his people from the Philistines. And Samuel, the religious leader at this time, he wants the people to remember, not just for a day, Not just for a week, but for generations to come, the faithfulness of God. That God was faithful to them when they humbled themselves under his mighty hand. So to commemorate this redemptive work, 
Samuel sets up a stone. It's meant to be a memorial, a big rock that he calls Ebenezer. And Ebenezer literally means rock of help. And what was to happen is every time Israel would walk past that rock, they were supposed to pause And they were supposed to look around and remind each other, listen, this is a rock that reminds us of God's faithfulness to us in the past. They're to tell their children, their children are to tell their children's children, remember the faithfulness of God. That's what that little line means. When it says, here I raise my Ebenezer, what we're doing is we're reminding ourselves in that moment all the ways that God has been faithful to us. So do we have that in our lives? Do we have that in this community? Do you have the eyes to see the good things that the Lord has done for you? And what would it look like to make landmarks of that faithfulness? One of the ways we fight for joy is we look back at what God has already done. Because here's the cool thing, as we look back, remembering God's faithfulness, it then causes us to anticipate his future faithfulness, no matter what we might be going through. And all that leads us to number three. So joy is not manufactured, it's received. Joy is rooted in God's past faithfulness. And the number three, joy affects a whole community. You see, the joy here in this song, it becomes infectious. When it settles in, this really did happen. We're not dreaming. God has been good to us in this way. It spills over into a corporate praise. All of this is set in a corporate language Our mouths were filled with laughter. We together have shouts of joy. We can remember these things together and then we can borrow one another's joy. When we're not feeling it ourselves, we look to our brother or sister and we remind each other of God's goodness. And then do you see what happens? There's a subtle shift. At the very end of verse 3, it shifts from the past to the present. They're so vividly recalling God's faithfulness in the past that Verse 3, it says, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Present tense. You see how they fought for joy there? They're remembering God's faithfulness until they feel that joy in the present. And listen, that's not manufacturing. That's not just working it up within us. No, that's rooted in God's real-life activity. It's rooted in God, and then it spreads through a whole community. This is how we remember our joy. We look back, and we make little landmarks in our minds, maybe we make physical landmarks, we remember God's faithfulness to us. That is where our joy is found. That's a lasting joy that does not determine or change based on your circumstances. But that's only the first half of the psalm. That's only the first half of this psalm that was being sung by these Israelites on this journey. You see, real life comes into play here in verse 4. We shift here from remembering our joy now to what I'm calling sowing our sorrows. See, the tone shifts in verse 4. Because everyday life is not just hopping from one mountaintop and cloud to the next, isn't it? It's full of all sorts of ups and downs. It's full of peaks and valleys. Your day-to-day existence, your hour-by-hour existence feels this, doesn't it? Some moments we're happy, things are great, the next moment it all comes crashing down. Life can feel like this roller coaster. And listen, nobody ever said that being a Christian means that life is going to be easy. Listen, if someone had promised you that, they're lying to you, okay? Jesus said that to follow him, we have to pick up our cross. We have to pick up an instrument of torture and death. In order to follow him, 
we have to follow a man who's described as a man of sorrows in the scriptures. You see, Jesus is well acquainted with our grief and with sorrows and with suffering and with difficulty. And so life is not always going to look like verses 1 through 3. It's often going to feel like verses 4 through 6. And as I'm getting older, I'm learning more and more that the reality of the Christian life is a simultaneous increase of both joy and sorrow. Both gladness and happiness and suffering and longing. Do you feel that? It's almost like they both are rising at the same time. Listen, we increase our joy in the Christian walk because we realize more and more the depth of Jesus' grace that goes further still. We realize that it was even better than what we could have imagined, but at the same time, we feel that sorrow. We feel that sorrow from a few different sources. The first place we do is just quite frankly our own sin. Our students have been working through a book called The Gospel-Centered Life, and in that book, the there's this beautiful cross chart, and it describes what growth in the gospel looks like. And what it is, is it's these two axes. It gets a bigger and wider as it goes. And the top means as we are longer and longer in the Christian life, we have a growing awareness of God's holiness. We realize just how perfect he is, just how glorious he is, just how righteous and majestic he is. And then as that line grows, the bottom line also grows. And as we know more about God, we also know more about ourselves. And so we see God is holy, righteous, just. We see that bigger and bigger, and then we see our own awareness of our sin get bigger and bigger because we realize I'm not that. Whatever I am, it's not that. And then the beauty of the cross chart is, of course, that Jesus and his cross, he makes up that gap even as it gets bigger and bigger in our lives. But we grow in awareness of our own sin, and that brings sorrow. It's not just our own sin, it's the sin of others around us. The sin of people that we love dearly could be brothers and sisters in Christ, could be somebody who doesn't know the Lord. When we're given the Holy Spirit, we now have eyes to see the world differently. And now we see people who maybe are throwing away their life, they're pursuing sin, they're running from the Lord, and it grieves us. It hurts. It's sorrowful. The other reality of sorrow is that we just live in a broken world. Things here are not the way they're supposed to be. The world is fighting back against God's purposes, and we feel the effects of this daily. We get sick. We get tired. The thing that we want to see happen, we just can't get there. We feel pain and suffering. None of those things are the way it's supposed to be, but it's part of living in this world. And so what we do in the face of that sorrow is a biblical thing called lament. We lament, and this is a lament. A lament is an honest prayer to the Lord that stands in the gap between God's promises and our pain. A lament stands in the gap between, God, I know what your word says to be true. I know how you've moved in the past. I'm recalling it even in this moment, but I'm not feeling it right now. I'm in pain. I'm in sorrow. I'm in suffering. And lament is how we cry out in prayer. A third of the Psalms can be categorized as lament. So if you're here and you're feeling that tension Learn from this in these verses. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, all of a sudden that shift happens, and the psalmist says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Do you notice it's the exact same language as verse 1? Remember, they're remembering the past faithfulness of God. They're saying, remember when the Lord restored our fortunes? Wasn't that awesome? And now in verse 4, they're looking at God and saying, God, we need you to do that again. 
We're not feeling that right now. Can you please restore our fortunes like you did back then? You see, what they're describing here is nostalgia. We all know the feeling of being nostalgic, don't we? It's incredible as you get older, All if you were an athlete in high school, don't your athletic feats just seem to get more and more impressive the older you get? I've found this to be a communal thing, right? Maybe it's because we want to impress people, but maybe there's something in that where we think, you know, those were the good days. My body works normally. My back doesn't hurt now, right? I can actually, like, do yard work and get sore nowadays. That would have never been a thing in high school. And we think back with some nostalgia. Those were the good times, right? Well, that can certainly happen to us spiritually as well. We've probably all been in a place of spiritual nostalgia before. This is precisely what happens to Israel, by the way. They go back from the exile, they go back to Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden it hits them, ah, things just aren't the way they were before. They get to rebuild the temple, but it's really boring compared to the first one. They get to come back and practice their own religion, but so much has happened, people just seem spiritually wearied. We're longing for the day when our faith felt like that, Lord. Can you restore what was there? And then the imagery here is really powerful, the Negev is a desert. It's a dry and barren place outside of Jerusalem. And the people are saying, Lord, we feel like we're in the desert. We feel like spiritually we are in a dry and barren place. And the way that the Negev would get water was through these natural ditches that would be found all throughout the desert. Uh, They were cut naturally into the soil. And for most of the year, those ditches were empty. It was just dry, hot, barren land. But what would happen is a couple of times a year, very suddenly, it would rain, not even over the desert, but off in the distance. And it would rain so hard that the water would begin running down the hills that surrounded the Negev, and all of a sudden those ditches would be filled with a flash flood of water. And the people are crying out to God, they're saying, Lord, we are in the desert And what we need you to do is rain some kind of spiritual nourishment down so that these ditches are all of a sudden filled with a flash flood of nutrients. It's crazy. They would even pop up grass and blossoms and flowers for a couple of weeks right in the middle of the desert, almost like an oasis. You see, what they're praying for is nothing short of a revival. They're praying for revival. They're saying, Lord, I don't feel your blessing right now. I don't feel that faithfulness that I felt in the past. I feel like I'm in a desert spiritually, and I'm asking you to send a flash flood of your blessing. It is wholly appropriate to pray for that. The psalmist is instructing us, please pray like that. If that's where you're at, you, brothers and sisters in Christ, gather around. Pray that the Lord would shower down his favor. Maybe your prayer right now sounds something like this, Lord, Make the Bible come alive to me like when I was a first, first saved and a new believer. I feel dry spiritually. Make it come alive to me. Lord, give me a heart for my unbelieving friends like I used to have. God, give me the energy to be killing sin and pursuing holiness. I feel weary. God, give me a prayer life like I used to have when I first was saved. It is wholly appropriate to pray and to ask for the Lord to move in that way. And here's the thing. Because God has proved himself faithful before, because he has moved in that way in the past, we should have a confident expectation he will do so again. He has a proven track record of faithfulness. 
God is a God who keeps his promises. He keeps his word. He is for us and for our joy. And so we pray for spiritual revival. We pray, God, bring a flash flood of your grace in the midst of my time in the desert. So we pray that. But as we pray that, sometimes it doesn't happen instantaneously. Sometimes we don't all of a sudden get washed over with God's grace. No, sometimes that desert season continues, doesn't it? And the psalmist knows that, and that's the beauty of how he ends this psalm. You see, while we pray and beg for the Lord to bring revival in that way, look at then the language in verses 5 and 6. It says, those who sow in tears, it's a beautiful phrase, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The psalmist is saying, God, bring revival, but until you do, and as we wait for you to move, here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep carrying on. We're going to take one step at a time on this road of discipleship with you until joy comes. And the analogy that's offered up here is one of farming. The idea is this, until the floodwaters come and bring nutrients, until we get to experience the grace of God in that way, we're going to keep tilling the ground and we're going to keep sowing seed. We're going to keep tilling the ground and we're going to keep planting seed, waiting for something to grow. We're going to keep putting one foot in front of the other, moving along this road of discipleship with you. This is the heart here at the King's Church behind our core values of fighting to show up and finding beauty in the ordinary. A lot of life feels like verses 5 and 6, doesn't it? God, I'm not feeling this in a major way right now, but I'm going to keep showing up. I'm going to keep putting myself in your way, in the way of your people, so that I can fight to see that there's actually beauty in this ordinariness of life. That's the heart behind it. We keep plunging into the work of God. We keep tilling the ground. We keep sowing seed because... There's blessing to be found there. There's blessing to be found there. And as we wait for the Lord to bring that flash flood of nutrients, the imagery here is so powerful. The psalmist says, until that day comes, we will water the ground ourselves with our tears. While we are in the desert place, we will water the ground ourselves with our sorrows until the harvest comes. Until we experience the shouts of joy that are promised, we will sow our sorrows into the ground. If you think about that for a minute, that means at least two things. If we're to sow our tears into the ground, that means, first of all, we're not avoiding our tears. We don't act like they're not there. We don't try to ignore them or suppress them. Listen, we are masters in our culture today at escaping our sorrows, aren't we? We start to feel sad, lonely, we feel the effects of sickness and illness, and then we binge watch Netflix for two days. Right? We eat a big carton of ice cream. We find things that make us comfortable. But all of those are just escapes, aren't they? Now, if we're going to sow our tears, we can't escape them. We have to be honest about them. We have to be real with our pain. We can't just numb it away. We have to be honest. So we don't avoid our tears, but on the other end, we also don't waste them. We don't just cry for crying's sake. No, you sow them into the fertile ground of God's kingdom. You have purpose in them. You sow them into God himself and into the things of God. 
And the beautiful expectation we have here is through all of those tears, through all of those planting them in the ground, you know what happens? Those tears you're sowing will reap shouts of joy. They will reap bundles and bundles of joy that you cannot even hold on to. That's what he means by coming home with sheaves, plural. That means you're going to have so much joy one day, you won't even be able to contain it. But until that day comes, we sow our sorrows, we pray them, and we trust that our tears actually produce something. That's the beauty of the Christian life. Our sorrows are never wasted in God's economy. Our pain is never pointless in the kingdom of God. All of it is producing something in us. And the reason why, of course, is we are following a Savior who walked this path already before us. Jesus, that man of sorrows who is acquainted with our grief, walked to the cross, and Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross and despised the shame. You see increasing joy, increasing sorrow? That's true of our Savior, too. But here's the thing. Planting seeds in the Negev would feel pretty foolish, wouldn't it? I'm not a farmer by traits, okay? I don't know a lot. In fact, I'm horrible at growing things besides weeds in my backyard. But I do know this. Planting a farm in the middle of the desert, not a great strategy, right? Not one that I would look at and be like, keep going there, right? But that's where they're at. They're in the Negev, and it says we're going to sow our tears. We're going to plant in the desert, So how in the world can we trust that when we plant seeds in the desert, this is actually going to grow into something? Or are we just being foolish? Well, here's the beautiful truth of the gospel. God is in the business of bringing dead things to life, isn't he? God is in the business of making the impossible possible. God is in the business of showering a desert with a flash flood of his grace So that in the most difficult times of our lives, when we just keep sowing in the ground, all of a sudden something beautiful blossoms. See, God is the one who brings water from the rock for the people of Israel. God is the one who by his mighty hand frees his people from captivity. And God is the one who raised Jesus three days after the crucifixion. And God is the one who does the very same thing in our lives as well. God is in the business of taking what is dead and making it alive. And that means as we wait for that in its fullness, we can trust our suffering is not in vain. Consider what Romans 5 says. It says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. See the tension there? Increasing joy, increasing sorrow. Here's how we can rejoice, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Listen, your suffering is producing Christ-likeness in you. You are not being put to shame. God is using every bit of our sorrows to make us look more like Jesus. And above all this, we can be confident that our tears of sorrow will one day turn to shouts of joy because God has promised that he will set all things right in the future. You see, there's a day coming where Revelation explicitly says there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more suffering, no more death. 
all those things will have passed away, and behold, an eternity with shouts of joy. An eternity where all of the sorrow that we felt increasing in this life will be a distant memory. We'll look our risen Savior in the face. He will make all things new, and eternity will be spent not fighting for joy, but receiving it moment by moment by moment. I want to end with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He has a beautiful reflection on this. He says, Our momentary weeping, while we let fall the precious seed, is scarcely to be thought of in comparison with the mighty sheaves of the exceeding glory in the land where tears are divinely and finally wiped from every eye. There is not a single drop of gall which will not be turned to honey. There is not a day that one drop of sweat upon your aching brow but shall crystallize into a pearl for your everlasting crown. Not one pang of anguish or disappointment but shall be transmuted into celestial glory to increase your joy world without end. See, brothers and sisters, our sorrows will turn to shouts of joy. And in the meantime, we stand in the gap, and whether we're in the desert or whether we've just been released from slavery, we get to look at the faithfulness of God. We get to remember that our joy is found in Him, and then we get to just sow our sorrows until the day that the harvest comes. The Apostle Paul says, do not grow weary in doing good, for one day you will receive a harvest. You will reap if you do not give up. So brothers and sisters, let's not give up. Let's link arms and let's keep walking the road of discipleship together. Let's pray.